It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and we're recording today on May 20th, 2020. And I'm really excited to be joined by two friends, uh, friends of the Hartman Institute, actually both alumni of Hartman Rabbinic Programs, um, who have gone on to much greater heights since, uh, to talk about a couple of incredibly important issues facing the Jewish world and responding to a couple of news items that the Jewish community has been thinking with in the last week. In the past week, the conservative movement released a responsum from the Committee for Jewish Law and Standards permitting the use of Zoom technologies on Shabbat and holidays. In anticipation, I think many of us are aware of uh, the likelihood of the high holidays having to be done in a very different way uh, by this fall. And then uh, a story came out in the foreword, probably a little bit of a questionable coverage about uh, uh, the unfortunate news out of the reform movement of the termination of about 20% of the staff of the Union for Reform Judaism, in which the reporter alluded to the fact that the head of the reform movement is going to be joined with us today, mentioned something about an openness to a merger, which of course sent uh, Twitter and social media and other places a flutter. Uh, I joined in, perhaps regrettably, uh, in that discussion. But nevertheless, on the agenda now, uh, in the Jewish community more broadly, are a whole bunch of questions about the ways in which the COVID-19 crisis is not just an exceptional crisis, perhaps an accelerant on a whole bunch of questions facing the Jewish world, around the size of our institutions, overlap between our institutions, and so forth. And uh, in particular, some really important questions about American Jewish religious identity uh, in the conservative movement and the reform movement. And so it's with a tremendous amount of uh, excitement that I welcome our two guests today, uh, Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, who as of the beginning of July is going to be the first CEO of the joint product of its own merger, the joint uh, entity that holds the Rabbinical Assembly and the United Synagogue for Conservative Judaism, and Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, both Rabbi Jacobs and Rabbi Blumenthal, effectively the heads of the congregational uh, and, in, and in Jacob's case, rabbinic arms of the two largest American denominations. So first of all, thank you both for making time, especially in this impossibly busy time for both you and your movements and your communities. It is a pleasure. Good to be with you, Yehuda. So, uh, you know, sometimes I start with a little bit of an icebreaker that involves food and cooking. Uh, I was kind of warned off about this one. So let me ask you just an opener question. Both of you, uh, in addition to your roles uh, and in your background, were at one point congregational rabbis in suburban Maryland, or in your case, Rick, uh, right up the street uh, in Westchester. What's the thing that you miss most about not being able to go to shul uh, for the last couple of months? Uh, Jacob, why don't we start with you? Well, I guess two things. One, I love singing with people. And none of our technologies allow us to actually sing in real time together. And so even when we're seeing each other on the screen or singing along with a live stream, it's just not the same. And also just being with people, giving people hugs. You know, we're a 
we're a we're a loving people. <laughs> so to to not be able to shake a hand or give somebody a hug appropriately, of course, I do miss it. I miss deeply the sense of being uh, in community with prayer, with singing, with just the warmth and the support that a community provides. I would say at the same time, I'm pretty exhilarated by what is possible and what is happening in terms of virtual prayer, virtual community. Uh, so it's definitely a double-edged sword. There is tremendous connectiveness today, maybe more than before the COVID-19. And there's also a deep loss if those can be held together. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's so powerful and so poignant that in a crisis like this, that one of the technologies that religion is designed for, which is to create community and to bring people together for prayer and to offer you know a deeper discourse about meaning and existential questions, like this is what we're built for, and uh, and it feels particularly poignant and and very hard that the technology of gathering together is something that is that has prevented us. And I'll say just personally, I miss a lot of pieces of shul. I think the thing that is surprising me is that the things that I miss are walking to shul. Uh, and I can go for a walk, but there's something about we're leaving the house, we're walking, and we know where the destination is uh, that's really quite different. I feel like all of our walks right now are just wanders. And the other thing is I really miss the sermons. I know that's like a like a punchline of a joke, but I am blessed to be in a shul with a tremendous rabbi, Rabbi Barry Dovkatz, and I just love that dose of someone else thinking about what's the 15 minutes that I need to hear this this Shabbat. And you know, Rick, to your point, yes, there's tremendous stuff that's being created right now, but sometimes it's just the things that are curated for you in your communities that are not, and I don't have to go looking for it. I just have to walk to shul on Shabbat morning and, and find it there. So let's talk about some of these uh, some of these items that are in the news and this whole question of to what extent the challenges that we're we're facing in our communities and in our movements to what extent this crisis is really unusual and to what extent it actually constitutes something an accelerant of some larger trends. There's no question that synagogue life in America has been challenged for a couple of decades. American Jewish religion has felt like it's been on the on the on the back foot. Uh, for a generation or two against uh, alternative options. I don't know if we need to go deeply into the question of the politics of merger. I think that just, it's so uh, it's so triggering for a lot of people to suggest that the way that we address these challenges is through solely institutional questions. But I, I'd love to get from, from both of you a sense of how are our movements doing? Uh, and I mean that in the narrow sense. You speak on behalf of, of movements, so it's a question about the reform movement in America. It's a question about conservative Judaism in America. But I think even bigger than that, like, What's the state of the project that we're involved with, which is American Judaism, which is not just institutional questions, but it's really theology and ideological questions? So first of all, I love the question. Let's actually zoom back out and let's think about the larger project, which is what's happening in contemporary North American Jewish life. Um, and I would say just very just kind of personally in the reform movement, we were built for adapting. We've been adapting since uh, we came onto the scene. You can argue uh, 150 for the URJ, then the United Union of American Hebrew Congregations. You could argue, um, you know, before that in terms of the Enlightenment, how is the project of the Jewish people adapting to the reality of the moment we are in? Uh, what are the modalities of learning and prayer and community and social justice? And the idea that the synagogue was the beginning, middle, and end of everything that happens in the Jewish community is no longer the case. There are many different ways that people connect, but there's something fundamental about 
gathering in a community that prays, that learns, uh, that cares for one another, and that has a voice in the moral questions of the day. And I think we're seeing many, you know, kind of healthy ways to reinvent synagogues, to reinvent some of the core practices. That was, you know, developing long before COVID-19 came along. COVID-19 is this huge surge of let's actually accelerate that project. And I think we're seeing uh, some things that, frankly, people were resistant to. I mean, people would say, you know, why should we change? Synagogues are doing fine. Why should we change, you know, prayer? It's working just the way it's supposed to. And then people waking up and saying, how are we going to extend the tent of Jewish life in this moment? And how are we going to bring more Jewish uh, meaning, content, connection to more people? That feels like the project. And on that, I think we're, we're doing some things really well, some things less so, but that's the project. I mean, I agree with everything that Rick said. I do think it's a challenging moment. And I think we need to be honest about the fact that some of our rabbis, our clergy, our synagogue leaders, and our communities are adapting more quickly, and others are still figuring it out. And we need to be honest about that. I would, but I think you asked a, a question on two different levels, Yehuda. One is where are we at in terms of ideology and sort of the ideas and practices around the movement. And then there's another piece around movements, which is, you know, our network and our institutions and how they're doing. So, you know, in terms of ideology, look, I mean, I think one of the things that we share, it's, it's expressed differently, but conservative Judaism talks about the idea that we understand that Judaism evolves in time and place. And um, sometimes it does that gradually, and sometimes it does it in radical or revolutionary ways. And there's been an ongoing debate about whether the moment we're living in now is one that calls for a gradual evolution or if, if calls for revolution. <laughs> I think that this pandemic has pushed us towards understanding the revolutionary aspect or the more radical aspect of what we are facing because it is a totally different moment and it has pushed some of those changes to the fore. And what's really impressive, I think, across the broad spectrum of North American Jewry and even global Jewry is how those changes have been able to be in effect. And it shows the vibrancy of our tradition and reinforces the power of that tradition, the fact that we can actually make those changes and, and adapt in such powerful ways, um, whether it's through different ways of understanding community or whether it's using technology, developing Torah that fits the moment, developing prayer in ways that fits the moment. Those are really exciting. Institutionally, it is also challenging. I would rate my own movement as having institutional challenges. There are not enough resources. This is a moment where we're called on more than ever to um, really be a network, and we want to provide that support. And I think we're able to do that, but it's not easy because I think in a way of blessing, much of the resources really need to be local and less about sort of umbrella institutions. There, there's a real need to push those resources back out into the field so we can have impact. But at the same time, we have to figure out what that role is as a network as well. Yeah, I would love to talk more at some point maybe about the resources question. Why, if our movements represent such a plurality or, or even majority of critical mass of American Jews, why, and why, if these, if our movements represent the kind of largest articulation of value systems, why it's really difficult to raise money for them. I'm fascinated by that because in some ways they, they seem at odds with each other. But there's something else that you said, Jacob, around, um, you know, believing in the value of the ideas of the movement and at the same time acknowledging institutional challenges. Now, I, I join with you on this. I, I, I've never believed that 
you know, political success or good infrastructure is a measure of the quality of your ideas. I mean, the best example of which is I'm still a liberal Zionist, losing at the polls, but I think it's pretty much still right. And you can hold on to that for a long time, but there, there is a relationship defined by the market around the quality of our institutional frameworks relative to the, to the merit of, of our ideas. So what's the moment at which you know, for you, Jacob, you've already acknowledged there's institutional challenges. I think even the merger of the two institutions is a tell that something had to change. And for Rick, you're dealing with, uh, a, you know, significant downsizing of the size of the URJ. What is, what's the moment at which we say those indicators that it's not working institutionally requires us to interrogate whether there's something, something wrong with the ideas or the ideologies? Well, to jump to say, you know, it's all not working is, I think, uh, not only premature, I think it's it's simply off. I know for me, there are always challenges. You didn't need COVID-19 to wake us up to the reality of a changing, you know, landscape of life, let alone Jewish life. So I think that the notion that, you know, we kind of have to think through and adapt is, I think, a new normal of what it means to be a leader, a rabbi, a cantor, an educator, a scholar, the leader of a movement. And I think that for us, you know, uh, I'll just speak very personally about the reform movement. We have 15 overnight camps. They're a huge part of what we do. And our decision not to have summer camp this summer and not to have in-person, you know, immersive experiences for teens and college students and, and trips to Israel was really hard to make. It, it, it was the right decision. It was the only decision. And the financial implications of that were enormous for us and for all of Jewish camping. So I don't take actually this moment to say there is something existentially, you know, uh, wrong or, or somehow out of balance. But I think if we think that uh, we can just cruise along and then wake up every couple of decades and make an adjustment to change, that's not the world we're living in. And I think that sometimes we embrace those changes and we lose our souls. Sometimes we, you know, hang on. And, you know, I, I think of the congregations just in our movement that didn't have live streaming and said, you know, that just depersonalizes religion. We need to be face to face all the time. And then, of course, they woke up in the pandemic and said, we don't have any way to nourish and even relate to our congregation on critical moments like holidays and Shabbat. So all of a sudden, there's a sense that the delivery mechanism was not adequate to the moment. The actual content of Jewish life, the core of what people are hungry for, and they are hungry, whether they're connected officially to a movement, a congregation, I get a sense very loud and clear that there's a deep yearning. There has been for millennia. We just got to figure out the best way to bring more people to access that and to have, you know, paywalls you know, in front of Jewish life at every step, whether it's a newspaper or a lecture by the Hartman Institute or a prayer in a congregation, we're also, what's, what's the financial sustainability of our different models? But I don't think what we do is less in demand. I don't think the hunger is any less, but I just think we have to, you know, not be wedded to our various institutional structures as the thing itself. Those are simply platforms those are simply ways to deliver the content, meaning, and impact. And I would say that in this moment, I think one of the things we're understanding is that people have egos and institutions also have egos. And when you have a moment of vulnerability, like we are experiencing globally, that's a moment to really think about what our personal egos are about, what they're trying to protect us from, and also what our institutional egos are about. And are there ways to break through that in that moment of vulnerability rather than reinforce them? So in other words, it, it opens up the possibilities of rethinking what we do and how we do it. The one thing I would say, Yuda, is you tend to use the, the M word a lot, merger. 
And actually, I, I think that that's very limiting. You know, Rick and I talk a lot about collaboration, partnership. Actually, the, the new structure that we're working with in, inside my own movement is not actually a merger of the United Synagogue and the RA. We are right now, we're just talking about integrating, collaborating. And one of the ways we're doing that is by sharing leadership, both my leadership and also creating a joint steering committee of lay leaders, rabbis and lay leaders who are going to think about how we steer through this moment institutionally. That may create even more integration. It could create a merger down the road. We don't know. One thing that I've found is that the minute somebody from the outside comes and says, you know, let's have you merge, that's when all the walls go up, as opposed to saying, let's think about impact. Let's think about what we can do. What are the structures that are getting in the way of that? In our case, it was in order to really be effective, clergy, rabbis, cantors, and lay leaders, whether it's professional staff or, you know, presidents and lay leaders in synagogues and other institutions, we can't afford anymore to feel like that's an adversarial system, an employer-employee relationship system. That needs to be a partnership system. We need to join together in vision and then in implementation. So we want to model that from the top, so to speak, in our umbrella institution, and then encourage that at every level throughout the movement. And we hope that it's going to be effective because that way we can actually create the impact that we want and not waste a lot of time on the institutional politics that have consumed so much of Jewish life. So first of all, I love the fact that uh, Jacob and I don't know each other a long time, but I think what's growing in our relationship is a chavruta, is an ability to learn together, to debate, to discuss, but always to deeply respect. And I think the question about merger versus collaboration, to me, awakens a huge teaching of Rabbi David Hartman of Blessed Memory, who taught us that the whole question of pluralism is also embedded in the question of mergers. There are distinct, authentic ways to live out Jewish commitment. And that notion that we just kind of, you know, blend it all together. There are distinct and beautiful and powerful ways that we, the Jewish community, live out those things. There are a robust pluralism within orthodoxy, lots of different ways. Uh, the reconstructing Judaism movement, reform, conservative, there's a whole you know, renewal. There are all these different places. And to think that, you know, somehow we've got to just mush them together disrespects the strands of authenticity in there. So I think the whole concept of merger is about blending. Collaboration is about where do we find strength? Where can we learn from others? How can we actually stand together? I'll give you a concrete example. The conservative reform movements have joined together in the wake of the World Zionist Congress elections. You know, not the biggest elections that happened in the universe, but a very significant way for particularly liberal Zionists to raise our voices. And heretofore, the conservative reform movements, you know, had a lot of overlapping commitments, but we actually never formally joined together and say, you know what, we're a coalition. Uh, excuse me, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Prime Minister Gantz, we are also a coalition. We don't stand together because we agree on everything. I actually don't agree with everything I think on a given day, but we stand together because we can have a bigger impact. Part of what um, a movement can do is to shape and reshape broader swaths of the Jewish community. Again, there can be power in that. There can be lethargy and bureaucracy and the things that get in the way. But I think when we actually can find places and also with JCCA, you know, the JCCs are all over our Jewish community. And sometimes we're fighting over scarce resources, but other times we say, you know what? There are more Jews not connected to anything. Can we actually divide and conquer? Can we actually figure out, you know what? You 
labor in that vineyard over here, this one over here, nobody's working. Can we find a way to strengthen the, the interconnection of our Jewish community and not just be throwing elbows because we've got to own our, you know, market share? Great. So I appreciate both the pushback around the language of merger versus collaboration and what it suggests. I do agree that sometimes the language of merger is assumed to be basically a negative consequence of, well, neither of you can stand on your own or it is coerced upon people. And anytime an institution goes, undergoes that evolution coercively and pessimistically, it's just, it's accelerating its own demise, even though it seems like, oh, that would be a smart way to work together. Um, so I'm with you. And I, as you both know, I am, I'm always an optimist about American Jewish life. I'm a big believer in it, partly because the alternative is worse, uh, but also because the only people who have actually paved a way to a better Jewish future are people who have said, okay, these are hard conditions, but how do I design for it in the moment? And, um, and the way that I usually frame it, you had a different catalog, Rick, but for me, it's America has created all sorts of new conditions. Uh, in which Judaism is supposed to proliferate itself, but the fundamental anthropological human needs that Judaism was meant to solve for of meaning and community and purpose have not changed. We have not undergone human evolution that fast. So we have to figure out how to provide that, uh, that technology. But all of that said, it's not so easy, right? And you know that more than anybody else. Let me give you a metaphor that I think about a lot. And, um, Daniel Boyarin, in his book, Dying for God, talks about the relationship between early, ancient Jews and early Christians for three centuries, where if you zoomed out 30,000 feet, you're not sure you, most people would be able to tell the difference between them. And it takes centuries, it's not instant, it takes centuries before they're really different communities. And the metaphor that he gives is about a medieval traveler walking from Paris to Madrid. So when the traveler's in Paris, he knows he's in Paris. And when he arrives in Madrid, he knows he has changed to a totally different culture, different language, uh, different signage. But most of the way between Paris and Madrid, that traveler will not know when he left what we now know as France and will not know when he's actually crossed over into Spain. Because even language, right, has this fluidity about it. And I guess the reason I'm thinking with this metaphor in this conversation is, yeah, I know the difference between a reform rabbi and a conservative rabbi. I know the difference between the strongest stakeholders in the movement, but is it is it still easy to differentiate? Do most American Jews know the difference between Reform and Conservative Judaism? And if not, then how much does sustaining the infrastructure of Paris and the infrastructure of Madrid as really strong poles, how much is that helping our people to be able to say to them, our Judaism is different than that Judaism, and how much of it is kind of confusing a people who is not in Paris and not in Madrid, but somewhere in between those two places. I like the metaphor. Um, I think we all are wandering, and if not maybe from Paris to Madrid, we're at least in the Midbar, we're in a, a wilderness of sorts. And, you know, the, the landscape is much more open. It's, there's not a clear path or map for us. And I think that your your assessment is that very few of Amcha you know, the, the, the rank and file of the Jewish people who go uh, to synagogue regularly or occasionally can differentiate on every level what are the real distinctions. But I do think, you know, if we look at things like um, the role of the non-Jew in Jewish life and how many of us in our intimate family have very important people who are not technically Jewish, well, honestly, you know, where's their place? Those are deep shifts that are happening, and they're happening across the demography. 
Um, there's an ideology that goes with that as well, which is we need to extend the tent and deepen the tent at the very same time. We have different ideas in the reform conservative movement, not right, not wrong, different ideas about how to do that. Jacob's amazing movement's decision about live streaming, I know as a Shekhianu was really important and significant. In our movement, people would say like, you know, of course, like, did, did we need scholars to sit and actually think that through? Not that we disrespect Jewish life, but it's like fundamental. It's like, you know, uh, penicillin. Of course, we're going to do that. So I actually think there are differences. They may not be the most profound. And to be honest, I think that people are looking for a Judaism that's alive and meaningful and serious and inspirational. And sometimes they find it in very traditional sources and sometimes they find it in completely new uh, modalities. Uh, I think that's what people are hungry for. No, no one's looking for the brand. You know, like you go into the supermarket and you're looking for the right brand. They're looking for what's, where's the living ember of this ancient tradition that I can experience and my family can experience. And we see a lot of migration around the, the sort of the Jewish ecosystem from, you know, very traditional. You could have a modern Orthodox person marries an Episcopalian. Where are they going to make their spiritual home? So I think there's a lot of undercurrents to the metaphor. But I, I do think that, you know, one can realize that Spain is different than France. Jerusalem is different than Tel Aviv. And on and on and on does not mean that there aren't distinctions. It, it's more than that. I think if, if you live in Paris, you're really proud of Paris. And you're working very hard to create a certain kind of culture in that space. And if you're in Madrid you're very proud of your own culture and what that looks like. And so, yes, there's some sort of space in between the two that seems gradual in its change, but there is also a difference between those two cultures. And in fact, that's the richness and the richness of any sort of global tapestry, right? Is that there are those differences. And, you know, I think about Giddy Grinstein and the Reut Institute, and I heard him speak at Hartman actually talking about how one of the gifts for the Jewish world and the reason for its ongoing thriving has been that it has created sort of multiple evolutionary experiments. Some fail and some succeed. But if we try to create, if we, if we move it down to just one experiment, we will actually be shooting ourselves in the foot. That since we understand how evolution works, we actually want to spawn as many different kinds of experiments as we can in Jewish life. And part of that needs to be institutional. It's very hard for a single institution to spawn lots of different experiments. Some can and get it right, but I think it's very hard to do. So we wanna really, I think, be very intentional about how we actually nurture lots of different kinds of experiences that meet lots of different needs and religious personalities, like I, I like to call them. I wonder whether the challenge is to sort of create efficiency <laughs> um, and minimize difference in the process, or actually if what we really should be doing is trying to nurture as many different experiments and expressions of Jewish creativity and thought as possible in any given moment. That's certainly, if we look at the broadest view of Jewish history, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the mystical movements or rationalist movements and, uh, and Hasidic movements, like the number of different types of expressions of Judaism that we have spawned is actually the gift that we've given to ourselves through this moment. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I'm with you on, you know, it goes back to B'nai Israel as a, as a people made up of tribes. I get that. The point was not the the fusion of Yisachar and Zvulun. It was actually the codependency of Yisachar and Zvulun, right? I get that. But here, I, I feel like I keep, I'm, I want to loop around to, I, I understand why it's important to have 
a really serious marketplace of American Jewish ideas. I couldn't believe in it more. I, I, who would want to live in a Jewish community of homogeneity? I mean, it's a nightmare, right? Um, so I, I love that idea, and I love the idea that we're, we are flourishing in all sorts of different ways. I just loop around to, does the way in which Paris and Madrid flourish, does it require that Paris has its own institutional infrastructure and Madrid has its own institutional infrastructure, or do we have to think about communal infrastructure in totally different ways? As it is already, right, as it is already, um, some great synagogues in America, and there are a lot, synagogues and temples, some of them are thriving because of their movements that they're affiliated with, and some of them are thriving in spite of the movements that they're affiliated with, because they sometimes feel held back or constrained in the conservative movement, I assume, around some ideological issues. I imagine, and I hope I'm not overstepping in the URJ sometimes because it's it grates to have to pay the fees to the movement. Um, but but it, it, I would imagine that for many of those rabbis, the question is, do I need this big infrastructure to hold me there? In other words, we're actually seeing a flourishing of a lot of different Judaisms, locally and nationally. And I, I wonder what happens, whether the consolidated infrastructure around ideological difference helps in that flourishing or actually becomes a liability. And that's what I'm nervous about. But I wonder if a larger institution would enhance that or not. In other words, like if you create an even larger institution that needs to have its own sort of center and then and, and then we're saying that those things that are happening in the extremes, you know, sort of farther out from that center are even in more tension as opposed to having two centers, right, where people feel at least closer to that space. I don't know. I think yeah. there's a give and take there. Yeah, I don't know whether it's larger or smaller because, you know, the, the, the other example looming on the horizon is orthodoxy, which actually has smaller institutions in a certain way, a lot of them. They are part of the same kind of ideological super system, but there's actually a lot more local uh, permissibility on institution by institution or synagogue by synagogue. I, I think that the question of, you know, this large infrastructure, as you talk about, is not a large infrastructure. It's connective tissue in what we would call a movement, which is a collection of institutions that actually have a deep relationship. So for us, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion is both uh, our seminary, it trains uh, professionals. Uh, we also, you know, work very closely with the other arms of the movement. Let me just use the analogy. The civil rights was a movement. It wasn't an organization. It wasn't the NAACP. It wasn't the Urban League. It was a host of things. And then it was a lot of people beyond who actually didn't pay dues to any one of those organizations, but they thought that what the civil rights movement was doing was critical. They showed up. They marched. I think what we're talking about is the power of a larger collective that, that we actually can, you know, uh, last night we launched our civic engagement. We want to raise a voice about the, the quality of, you know, moral life in uh, any country that we live in. Can we have a collective voice? Can there be a larger, when it comes to liberal Zionism, that's exactly why we're joining our forces. So rather than think of it as some elaborate bloated bureaucracy, which of course uh, I know in both our cases, there's not a large bloated bureaucracy. There's a, a very, I think, nimble and uh, and very strategic uh, connective way in which we do our work. But there is, a, you know, the idea that we're all independent islands, you know, in this sea, I think how we find the ability to stand together. And I think one of the things that this collaboration between the Reform Conservative Movement is powerful is that we actually overlap in so many areas 
Let's be able to use that as a strength to reach out beyond our institutional walls to people who, frankly, don't get the differences, haven't yet tasted anything really uh, nourishing and deep in their own Jewish experience. So I think we're already seeing it. And I don't know in terms of holding back local. I mean, one of the things that's happening in this COVID-19 moment is that there's tremendous creativity going on in the grassroots. What a movement can do also is to, is to take best principles and spread them out. You know, the people in El Paso may not know what's going on in Seattle. And to be able to say, let's create platforms where we can do this work together and to make it sometimes it's top down, but most of the time it's, you know, it's, it's grassroots coming up. And let's be a movement that's trying to change and shape not only the Jewish community, but the world. And for that, we need more power, more strength and more connection. And mutual support. There are definitely congregations out there and, and rabbis out there, clergy, who, who feel like they could do this by themselves. But there are a much larger number of communities who really can't do it on their own, who, who need the connection and the support and the ideas and the resources. It's very hard for a congregation to say, yes, we're going to make our own sidur. We're going to create our own humash. We're going to figure this all out for ourselves. Everybody is using some type of shared resource, even if they are then using their own individual creativity to take that platform and move it forward. I think we really do, want, at least I think of ourselves as developing an operating system that others then use in, in ways we probably would never have been able to imagine. If it's a good enough operating system, that's exactly what it should be able to do. And then we have to help people remember that we really are a collective, that uh, even in, when the, in moments when they do feel like they could do this on their own, there are other folks in other parts of the country who can't. And our job isn't just to create a thriving community that's local, but actually thriving Jewish life that's both uh, continental and global. Yeah, by um, by being movements in the way that you've characterized, there's also, um, even in that framework, which is not, Rick, to your point, it's not a narrow framework, it's actually quite expansive. Uh, you're also both constantly evolving. Rick, your, your speech in, I guess it was 2014, I think, uh, the Audacious Hospitality speech, which which paved a new direction for the movement around inclusion on a whole bunch of different indexes. And Jacob, the ongoing, um, the ongoing shifts and puts and takes, especially right now around technology, suggest a kind of constant evolution and adaptation relative to what, what are the needs of American Jews and American Judaism. Both of those moves are always going to lose people. And uh, I guess I'm just curious, when you think about, because movements are, are by definition, that's the name of the word, they're dynamic. And when they're dynamic, that means you're sometimes following the will of the people and sometimes you're leading the will of the people. And hopefully it's not, you're not on extremes on either end, but there's going to be people who are either too far ahead of you or too far behind you and get left behind. And how do you think about that? Uh, what are the, how do you, how do you weigh the dynamics of Jewish leadership when you know that not everybody who you're trying to lead can come along with you uh, with where you're trying to lead them? No, you, you, I just asked you, is that some new phenomenon in Jewish life? I mean, you're, no, you're no, scholar. of course, but you're our scholar here. No, no, I mean, that's not been at every epoch and every moment, the dynamic tension. To what degree are you a reflection of your community as a leader? I mean, I went back and read my predecessor, Maurice Eisendrath's um, 1964 book, uh, basically, Can Faith Survive? And here he was in the middle of the civil rights movement. Here he was, you know, Vietnam War, the proliferation of synagogues in the 1950s. I like to, what was he thinking? How did he both harness and reflect those tensions? And I think that that's the dynamic balance that always has to be struck. By the way, one of the things I also found in that book is he entered HUC in September of 1918. One month later, the pandemic hit 
and they sent him home and all the students. Five days after he got home, his father died. So I was actually trying to think, what, how, how did even that experience shape who he was and what shaped his own sense of what Jewish life could be? But I think we are, you know, in a long line of Jewish leaders who've got to be pushed and pulled every day by how far out ahead am I or how behind am I for the, the things that are growing beautifully. And I think that's one of the things that our movement, you know, uh, with our central government rabbi, they've got 2,000 rabbis thinking, smartly writing, agitating, feeding back. Um, I, I think it is a, it's a whole shared moment. And the idea that there's some office in some building somewhere where people are deciding like a general on a battlefield where everything is going to be, that's actually not the reality. And I think the place of ideas, the place of thought, the place of creativity and artistry also are as much the things that spark and redirect and make us continue to move. Because if we're going to be movements, as you say, uh, the one thing that's absolute is we can't stay still. Yeah, so I'm, I'm asking precisely because this is a question throughout Jewish history and precisely because this is not... These decisions don't get, it sounds like, oh, the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards meets in a room and decides this, but it's actually a composite of human beings who live in communities relative to other people and their decisions have consequences. And I'm, the reason I'm asking it precisely is because it is a historic question and the people who are, who sit in the roles to do this, I'm, I'm looking to unfold some of the humanity that underlies what those choices mean. When you know that you sit in a position of leadership that's going to impact a lot of people, when you know that there are Jews who are going to get welcomed in to the reform movement because of a change in policy and Jewish adjacent human beings, um, and uh, when you know that there are going to be people left behind because of a, either a policy decision or a lack of decision that people can't abide. And, and therefore, the work of leadership is not just to know that you're in a long chain of people who've done this, but to actually, and all of us know this, to actually deeply internalize all of the consequences for other human beings in, in these choices. Uh-huh. I would just say that I'm reflecting on what we've all been talking about and realizing that there is a change in the paradigm of leadership, I think, in our time, certainly from what I think how leadership in the Jewish community might have looked, at least in my movement in the 60s and 70s, which is, is a move away from control and to, towards empowerment. In other words, so the law committee, I think, at a certain point in my movement was thought of as a way to control what happened out in the world, right? And whether it was through permission or through prohibition, there was at least a fantasy that it would sort of say, this is, this is how we're going to be as a movement, and these are, the, these are the boundaries. And I think that today we understand that very differently. Just the fact that it used to be that, um, that the decisions of the law committee were, were only given to rabbis. You had to write to the rabbinical assembly. A colleague would write to the rabbinical assembly office and get a copy of the teshuvah, the responsum, and then it was sent back to the rabbi who could then decide how he wanted to share that with his community. And that's not the way it works anymore. The, all of our responses are published on our website and they're available to the entire Jewish world. And rabbis come to me all the time and say, but well, so now my, my congregants have read this responsum and they want to know how I think about it. And the job of the rabbi is very different. The rab- job of the rabbi now is to guide and to help interpret and to be in dialogue and conversation with the community to help empower them in dialogue and, and in a cooperative fashion to figure out what their community looks like and what their practice is going to be. And that's, that's partly technology, but it's also partly culture. Um, that this is a very different moment of individual empowerment. And that's, I think it's an absolute blessing because it's going to give rise to even more diversity. When we released this chuva, it wasn't to say now everybody has to go 
and use technology. I think Yehuda, you yourself wrote a beautiful article this past week talking about other possibilities besides just using technology. For me, the high holidays that are coming up, if we can do anything to get us beyond 1,200 people all sitting in one room passively listening to a Torah reading or a rabbi sermon, I'll consider it a success. So whether it's squads of chauffeur blowers going out to different neighborhoods and everybody standing on their porch and hearing the shofar or gathering in small groups by the bank of a stream to do tashlich, or if it's possible in terms of the medical opinions for us to meet in small minyanim, all of that, do as much as you can to be in that space, as well as the need sometimes to come together virtually as well for congregations and rabbis who choose to do that. And we have plenty of rabbis, by the way, in my movement who are going to choose not to do that. And then we are pushing them to think about, so what are the other paradigms? What are the other structures that we could use so that Yom Kippur, we don't have a service, you know, pre-Kol Nidre, and there is nothing, there's no experience for somebody to have until after Ne'ilah. Like, what could that day look like? Um, one of our colleagues uh, came up with this beautiful idea of creating a Seder, akin to the one at the on Passover, you know, but for either Rosh Hashanah night or Rosh Hashanah morning or even Yom Kippur morning. Like, what could a family do sitting together to explore the very powerful themes of the holiday? I can't imagine themes that are more powerful in the midst of a pandemic than the kinds of things that we want to talk about on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, about creation, renewal, life and death and vulnerability, you know, how could we explore those in powerful ways? And, and my only concern about our recent tshuva is that will be a distraction from that. And I think you were trying to push us on this, Yehuda, that it will be a distraction from our ability to think creatively about all the different modalities that we could use to develop those opportunities and experiences. You know, and, and what we do is we say to our rabbis, you're the Mara Atra, which, by the way, is also a changing role. But you are working with your community in dialogue to figure out how to make those things happen. And that's the excitement of this moment, even amidst a lot of loss and, and difficulty and challenge. Yeah, you know, I saw Rabbi Charlie Schwartz wrote something to the effect of, you know, maybe the answer just is this year, let's let's make the focus on tshuva and staka and maybe a little less on tefillah. And I, I love that because it actually was a reminder that the commodification of prayer at the center of the high holidays was itself a choice. And if you did like a radical, a radical staka. Uh, charity and radical repentance as the culture right now, who know, uh, you know, doesn't mean we're going to not, you know, miss the singing, right. but you get, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of creativity. Let me ask you one last By question. Way, not just a choice, but also possibly avoidance. Avoidance. Right? Yeah. And I, I think about it, in, you know, as I think about yeah. your words, Yehuda, like, it, was it also that Chuvan Stakar really hard compared to prayer? <laughs> yeah. And, um, right. and maybe, you know, actually, this is this is a moment that's calling us to actually do much harder, challenging work. Yeah, and um, and, and prayer, think about. prayer is something that other people can lead for you, but but repentance, you know, you can't really outsource. Got to do it yourself. Um, yeah. You know, you said something, Jacob, also about the challenge of doing all this stuff out loud, and uh, and I'm reminded of a story like this that we had at, at the institute when we um, we profiled, we did a series of videos a number of years ago and profiled a reform rabbi who was talking openly about her commitment to perform intermarriages. And the criticism that we came under from other rabbis from the reform movement, then their congregants were saying things to them like, well, Hartman says it's okay. And I said, no, no, but we're, we're not a policy institution. We're a baby drush. Anyway, so, um, I, I'm aware of what, ha what happens when you do this stuff out loud and the pressure that that puts on, on the rabbis as gatekeepers. My last question and, and 
Uh, I know it's a big one, but we'll do maybe a, a, a short answers on this one. But, you know, it's interesting, Rick, when you said the places of collaboration are around, for instance, the, the World Zionist Congress elections. And one of the questions that I've been pushing on a lot the last couple of years is how political should our denominations be? And invariably, whenever the movements do take a stand on a domestic political issue, an Israeli political issue, that's the stuff that gets picked up in Jewish media. So I'm just curious, like, on one hand, you know, there's so much uh, energy around Jewish politics, and they are, and, and we're in a highly partisan political moment. So it's kind of going to where the people are, to be hyper locked into to political culture. But it's so clear also that it's not like on every issue should a religious denomination be taking a political position or issuing political platforms. So just maybe give us a little bit of insight on how you each think about this from your perspective of leadership. When is it a moment to say the reform movement needs to take a position on this? And when is it a moment where you say the conservative movement's not weighing in on this at all? So first of all, I think we are very, very cognizant of uh, choosing when to raise a prophetic voice in the world. I had the privilege or challenge of debating one of the candidates for Israel, the uh, chief rabbinate. And in the middle of our debate, he said, uh, you made up tikkun olam. You've made it a religion. It, it's not actually. And I just looked at him. I said, excuse me. Um, I, I, my mother would love to hear that I made up tikkun olam. That's, that's really going to be something she'd actually believe that. Um, but the truth is it's been fundamental to what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a leader and to have moral backbone. So I pushed back and I said, if you become chief rabbi, Will you raise a moral voice about integrity in public life? Will you raise voice about the way in which discourse demeans other people? Will you have a voice about things other than ritual observance and um, chametz on Pesach? And uh, he was rather quiet. So I, I know that there are times where people say, well, you only have a voice about political issues in Israel or here. But I'm also seeing the tendency to shrink from raising a voice at all. And to say, you know what, let's just make everybody feel good. They come to synagogue, they come to be part of a movement. They don't want to be told that something may, in fact, be a moral outrage. So I think we have to, first of all, I know in our movement, we have a, a process. We, we put things out in our biennial with 5,000 people in, um, in Chicago this past December. We tested things that we wanted to potentially find our voice. I don't get up in the morning and say, you know, eat breakfast and say, you know what, I'm going to just speak about something we haven't had any conversations with uh, in our movement. So on what basis do we say those things? But if we don't have a moral voice in a moment like this, what are we? I mean, I think it's an absolute abdication of what it means to be a Jew. And I see that as one of the choices before, you know, um, Jewish life. You know what? Let's just, you know, sit quietly in meditation. I love to meditate. I love to study. And there are times when I need to get out on the streets. I need to be loud always respectful of the different points of view. But I think we're in a moment where we don't want to add noise, but we need to add a moral voice. A couple things. First of all, we live in an age where everything is political and where we are being manipulated to become as radical as possible because it meets the needs of some of our politicians to do so. That's not new in the world, but we, under we do need to understand that that's a moment that we're living in. And it's not the same moment that we might have lived in uh, in, in, even in other decades. I do think that there is a different space here where even when we talk about something as simple as how, sh how could we reopen our buildings and institutions to physical, physically proximate experiences, all of a sudden that is as much a political statement as it is, you know, just asking the right questions about pikuach nefesh, how do we, 
how do we preserve life? So we just have to understand, first of all, that we're in that moment. I don't have the perfect answer for how we do it, but I'm very aware of it. That's number one. Number two is we are connected globally. So for example, in my movement, we, we're not just able to, we, we have to think constantly not about all of the challenges around the direction that Israeli society is moving in versus the direction that Jewish uh, American or North American society is moving in. And that's very complicated. I'm, it's not news to you, Yehuda or Rick, but, but it, is very, it is a more complicated moment and we need to be aware of that. And it, in some cases, does limit our voice collectively. And it also means that in, as in much of our culture, the responsibility sometimes moves away from a central responsibility and into a more local or even individual responsibility. And the paradigm that we sometimes have to use is one of individual or local empowerment and grassroots work rather than something we can necessarily do collectively. And our job is to actually encourage that and, and to be in that empowerment mode. In other words, again, some of this has changed and sometimes that is frustrating. At the same time, there are other times where there is clear consensus here in North America, for example, around expanding the vote and making sure that every person can vote. We, we recently did a piece about that as a rabbinical assembly because we knew we had resolutions and we knew that there was a broad consensus among our colleagues to be able to push for that. And, and we were able to, you know, to be out and, and doing that work. So sometimes it's very empowering and reassuring and sometimes very frustrating. I will also say, though, that the message that we have received clearly, both from our congregations and from our rabbis, is that the first thing that they want is for us to connect and support them in the work that they're doing. And they don't want to feel like we are being distracted, you know, only by the politics of the moment. So it doesn't mean that they don't want us to have what we call the veramet, a voice of truth and prophecy out in the world, that that prophetic voice is important. But they also want to make sure that we're really spending time helping empower them to make an impact, to do their best work, and to give them the vocabulary and the the texts and the thinking that they might need to formulate their own positions and help explain those positions to their own community and help activate them. So, you know, this is a, th those are powerful responsibilities for all of us, I think. Yeah. And I, um, I can't tell you how, uh, just as a, as a citizen of the Jewish people, how grateful I am that both of you are in the roles that you're in and for the posture of, uh, both humility and COVID Roche, like a real sense of responsibility of what you're holding for a lot of people. Uh, I, I sit in a, in a, in a position of relative comfort, uh, in time, in terms of the types of work that we do, because our constituency is anyone who wants to come learn, uh, which is really different than the constituencies that you hold and the coalitions that you're trying to hold together. And so, uh, so I'm really grateful for, uh, not only for the work that you do, but for coming on this show today, um, for talking through with us and with a, a much broader audience, uh, some of these hard issues. I know that I push a little bit. Um, that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'll just also say to our listeners, uh, we do have a commitment here on identity crisis, uh, not to do all male panels. Uh, I spoke to, I know both, uh, Rick and, and Jacob feel strongly about this too. Uh, I felt on this issue, uh, it was, uh, important given the, positions that both Jacob and Rick hold uh, in their movements to have that kind of parallelism and to be able to have a really candid conversation from positions of power. And so I decided to take the approach this week of asking forgiveness rather than permission. Um, but we are going to hold to that, uh, that commitment going forward. Um, and, and, and to both of you, I just, uh, I wish you just a lot of uh, success and strength over the next couple of months. This is hard on all of us. Uh, and, and you're holding a lot for, for so many American Jews. And to our listeners, thanks so much for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. 
It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, so you can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy. I hope you enjoy the company and presence of the people around you. And thanks so much for listening.